Welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here, and on this episode, I had the pleasure to sit down with the 347th Recruiting Squadron's first sergeant, Master Sergeant Anthony Jordan. With 19 years in the Air Force, serving as a crew chief on multiple airframe, Sergeant Jordan had the opportunity to travel all over the world, and in doing so, he picked up pieces of great mentorship and experience along the way. While serving as a maintainer at McConnell Air Force Base in Kansas, Sergeant Jordan decided to pursue the first sergeant special duty. After overcoming obstacles, Sergeant Jordan finally put the diamond on and has not looked back. He said that the most important part about being a first sergeant is making connections, whether that be with people or with agencies on a base and around the community. I really appreciated having Sergeant Jordan on. As we talk about in the podcast, he is just a ray of sunshine in this office and in this squadron, and I think it truly reflects his personality. So, without further ado, First Sergeant of the 347th Recruiting Squadron, Master Sergeant Anthony Jordan. To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment. Welcome to the Air Power Hour. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here. And today I have the honor of being joined by a very special guest uh, here at the headquarters at the 347th Recruiting Squadron. Uh, I am joined by our f- wonderful First Sergeant, oh, wow. Master Sergeant Jordan. Sergeant Jordan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Check. I appreciate you finally having me on. I know, I know. I've I've seen you standing outside the window when the the live on air is on, and I, I know you've you've been chomping at the bit. No, I've I've been avoiding it more than anything, <laughs> just because. I mean, I don't know if I'm ready for the intense line of questioning. Oh, I think you're going to be wonderful. Um, ever since you got here, you've been kind of like a bright ray of sunshine in in the squadron, and I've always once we started this, I knew. We had to get Sergeant Jordan on. And then I heard that you have experience in this. You've done this before. Uh, I was part of a unit or part of a wing that had a first sergeant podcast. Um, I don't I don't know if they're still doing it. Yeah. It was fun. It was an experience. Uh, different, different goal. Oh, yeah. Uh, different intent behind it. That was more trying to get information out to the airmen across the wing and hitting a, a platform that might better suit their ears or better suit their interest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, kind of what we're doing here. We're trying to find a different medium, a different way to, to get to the, the perspective applicants or people that are, you know, in our unit that just want to hear the stories of, you know, the wonderful people that work here at the 347th. We do have some wonderful people. Yes. We are absolutely lucky and blessed, wherever you want to call it. Like we have some amazing leaders, recruiters, just airmen. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been completely blessed to be a part of this unit. So, without a doubt. Yeah. I am lucky every time I come into work. I just feel lucky yeah. every single day. So, what we're going to do today, obviously, you know how the Air Power Hour works. And, and we, I brought you in here today because I really want to hear your story. You know, I understand that you're a first sergeant and you have a lot of responsibilities and, and you take pride in what you do. And I can see that on a day to day basis. But I don't know anything about Airman Jordan or I didn't know anything about. Anthony Jordan before he joined. So let's start from the beginning, Sergeant Jordan. And can you tell me when you decided that the Air Force was going to be the path that you took? Sure. So 
I'll start with this, right? So I've sat in a lot of FTAC briefings and talked to Airmen. You always get the question of, you know, why did you join or what made you want to join the Air Force? And I've always given, to be honest, a kind of a generic answer yeah. or not, not a hundred percent. I don't want to say not truthful, but I never elaborated. Reason being, um, I always told people I didn't really have a reason. I got talked into it. I didn't have a, a need to serve. I didn't have that pull. I wasn't chasing education. I didn't like college. Yeah. I tried it for a little bit, real small bit, but I didn't have that. I had a friend who had brought the idea of the Air Force to me, and I had already taken the ASVAB in school, and the story was always like, he talked me into it, and I said, sure, let's try something. <laughs> I mean, but if we're going to be honest, right, the real story of why I joined, and not a lot of people know this, Jack, so you're getting some exclusives. Yes. Um, I grew up in what a lot of people would look at as a pretty rough environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, mom, dad, we grew up in Texas pretty young and they went through a divorce and I had a, I have three sisters. So mom's not gonna like to hear this if she listens to the podcast, but she'll get over it. Three sisters. So four of us total, four different dads. Okay. Okay. Um, two of which Texas, couple in Michigan where we ended up moving. I grew up in a home of, uh, I've seen some domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of alcoholism, um, sexual assault, um, child abuse, like a lot of the stuff that I deal with as a first sergeant and respond to. Yeah. I saw that a lot of times firsthand growing up. And it, I say that because it, I never let it define who I was growing up as a teenager and as a kid, but it definitely shaped a lot of my perspectives of For how sure. I look at things, especially now as a first sergeant. Um, but when I, I graduate high school, so we go through this whole process of going through school. We moved to Michigan and hard life. We don't need to get into details, but it, it wasn't the best. Yeah. Right? Um, not a lot of money. So we're coming out of school and I'm graduating and I think I'm going to go to college or I had plans of college. I want to be a athlete and go try to wrestle or run track somewhere and had these plans and I did my best to stay on the straight and narrow and had a positive attitude, uh, fell in love, canceled all those plans, Yeah, stayed there for the girl. Um, and then we broke up just as mm. they would always have it. Right. So I was sitting at a pretty low spot and it was the first time that I was questioning or I started to kind of waver in my own confidence. Um, cause I had looked at a lot of the stuff I had overcame as a kid and I already had those low points. Yeah. Um, so joining the air force, it was, the, the honest decision, it was the first time when he came to me and my best friend came to me and I was working in a factory in Detroit, um, making all, like stamping auto parts and tried to go through community college and dropped out because it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, not for me. Um, so when he came to me and brought up the idea of the Air Force, I told him i think about it. And I went home and there, there is some truth to I didn't have anything better to do. Um, but it was the first time of like looking in a mirror and kind of reflecting where I felt, for lack of a better way, I felt like a loser. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going anywhere. I had just gotten, had wrecked a vehicle, um, broken up by the girlfriend, working down in Detroit, just stamping parks, working with side by side with 40, 45 year old men who, great people, but that's not what I envisioned for myself. For sure. And I was at a pretty low point and I just, it got to a point, why not? Mm -hmm. I, I really didn't have a good reason. And I was just embarrassed looking in the mirror and looking at where I was and who I was. And it, the best decision, I think, 
I ever made. Yeah. Definitely impulse. Definitely shocked the family when they heard that's what I was doing. But it, my childhood and that decision and leading up to that point, just, it's shaped everything. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely everything that has happened for the last 19 years, which is where I'm at right now. Just past it here wow. this last October. And the opportunities that the Air Force provided and that I was given. Yeah. Uh, it's so hard to quantify. And that's the happy, like that ray of sunshine that you said. I mean, I'm glad that's what I portray. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that's pretty much how I feel just because I, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Because I know what it looks like on the other side of not having those opportunities and being on those lows. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I was kind of the same way. Very, it was very impulse. I, when I went through high school, I never, even thought one second that I would join the military, you know, the three sport athlete and going off to college was kind of the, the thing you were supposed to do. And it was so much of an impulse to the point where my mom didn't believe me. I said, yeah, I think I'm going to join the air force. And she just kind of like, okay, uh, we'll see. And, uh, next thing you know, 20th birthday, I'm on my, my way down to San Antonio. So it got real. It gets real and it gets real, real fast. Yeah. Um, Similarly, my mom didn't believe I was going to go. They, her, my stepdad, they didn't, sure, show us. Yeah, right. Um, but they knew that's what needed to happen. And mm-hmm. that's what I got after the fact of, or after talking to them, it's, he, I needed to do something. Yeah. Or I was going down that, that bad path of just doing stupid things and being dumb and yeah. honestly not knowing um, what right looked like. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to develop that for myself. I had to, I had to develop that for myself and that's, that's where it all started. Yeah. So now when you went off to basic training, when you joined, did you have a, a guaranteed job? I did. So I ended up, at least I believe I had a guaranteed job, but I went in and it was fairly easy. So I knew I wanted to join. I wanted to go and I got a list of opportunities or a list of options. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I picked crew chief. So yeah. right. Aircraft maintenance. And I think the recruiter was probably music to his ears at that point. Yeah. That, that, hey, this is available. They showed me a brochure. And I'll, I'll never forget, I don't. I think it was a staff or a tech sergeant sitting in front of a C-17 talking about traveling, seeing the world. I'm like, yeah, I need to get out of here. This is perfect. Yeah. Let's do it. And my friend who talked me into it, they did the buddy program. They had oh, all that nice. stuff. We didn't do it. I no? just wanted to go. He talked me into joining. I was like, I'm joining. He went security forces, did something, left wow. a little bit later. I left before he did, took the first shot. I think I waited uh, probably about maybe two months. Like it wow. wasn't a real long time in the depth, but just a little bit. Yeah. And then rolled out and headed off to Lackland to go what I thought work C-17s to be an aircraft mechanic. And then I ended up at Pope working oh. in ISO on C-130s, which best thing could have. I didn't get to travel. Yeah. Not like I thought you get stuck in a hangar and you get just taking apart aircraft, putting them back together. But the best thing that could have happened for me as a crew chief I learned so much about that airplane. It set everything up for success, man. So how how was it going from working in a factory, stamping car parts, to now you're in basic training? And every single minute of your day is scheduled and you are on it for 24 hours a day. It was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. And I know I'm the oddity on that for most people. They don't like the idea of, being told what to do or being yelled at and it's hard. I loved it from the aspect of actually I'll I'll break it down like this. The moment I knew I loved it and I knew the air force was going to be awesome is when we sat down in the chow hall or the DFAC, excuse me, we sit down in the DFAC 
And you can eat as much as you want, but it's got to be quick. Yeah. And you're on a time and start rolling. And I can eat whatever I want. Let's yeah. do this. Because I didn't have that freedom a lot of times growing yeah. up. So being the idea of I can have what I want, so I'm having pancakes and rolling them up in sausages and adding peanut butter and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I gained weight in basic training. Yeah. I kid you not. I put on, I think, probably about 10 pounds in basic training. I didn't mind the hard stuff. Because in my head, I already knew what hard was. Mm-hmm. I'd already been through it. So this is just, oh, yeah. this is easy. Yeah. I come in and I just have fun. Yeah. I I didn't have too too difficult of a time in base training because it was it was really just, I got to the point where I was like, okay, this is just basically mind games. You know, they're going to break you down and then they're going to build you up the way they want you to be like an airman. And once I figured that out and it's almost like you're playing a game and as long as you just, it's. I always told my recruits, it is called basic training for a reason. It is very basic instructions. You know, they tell, they tell you how to walk. They tell you how to stand. Uh, they tell you how to talk and they tell you how to get dressed. I mean, it's simple stuff. You just have to follow the rules. Yep. It's all entry level, how to be an airman. Yeah. That's where it starts. So you go off to tech school and you do the crew chief thing. And then your first base is Pope. It was Pope. North Carolina. I went to Pope, work in the ISO docks, and uh, I think I was there for about three and a half, four years. Okay. And Pope went through a brat closure. Mm. So we got, they came down with a couple of options for bases, and if we wanted to move, and uh, I think a handful of us all out of the ISO dock, they showed us Little Rock, and we're like, well, let's go as a family and as a group. And we all showed up at Little Rock kind of car, like legit, I think we had three or four families carpool. Wow. On our PCS to Little Rock. Um, so it was awesome. We like transplanted friends, had people there, and it was kind of a smooth transition. Um, and we spent, I wasn't at Little Rock very long. So we got to Little Rock, and the first thing I did is I went into the flight chief's office, or section chief is what we had, mm-hmm. or what we called them, and I asked to deploy. Yeah. Reason being, right? So we're at Pope, I was crew chief. There was a stigma back then of you were either crew chief or you were APG. Okay. APG meant you were hanging out in the hangar. You hadn't been flying. You haven't deployed. Like that was like that three level kind of status. Yeah. That's changed over the years. But um, I didn't want, I wanted to know what it was like to be a flying crew chief. I wanted to know what it was like to deploy. And I wanted to know if this was the job for me truly because I was coming up on that first reenlistment. Yeah. And so I, I jumped on the first deployment I could and I was deployed within six months of being at Little Rock. Wow. And felt, once again, just this is awesome. Yeah. Came back, became a flying crew chief and just spent the next, I was only there for about two years and just spent the next, that whole two years just on the road and traveling and gone constantly. I don't think my wife was a huge fan. So I got married when I was at Pope. Okay. Um, kind, not a high school sweetheart, but we met in the hometown. Oh, nice. One of those, one of those classics. Backtrack. When I was in the depth, I met a new girl and we started dating, which is probably every recruiter's nightmare. Yeah. Um, but we ended up staying together and did a long distance thing, but we got married when I was at Pope. Oh, that's awesome. And yep, still married. Same, same wife. It's been a minute. That's awesome. But, uh, so we got to little, I was gone constantly. She yeah. found work, started working. That's no kids. Just so we did okay. work and have fun and travel. And that was, that was kind of my life for the longest time. Yeah. At least that time at, at Little Rock. So, um, when we got to Little Rock, spent two years, spent deployed, went to, uh, Balad. Okay. Iraq. Yep. And then I found out on the way back from Balad, because of the brat closure, 
and I don't really know how this works. I don't know if it still works that way, but it worked for me somehow. I was still eligible for a BOP. So I did a basic nice. preference at the time. And out of just sure luck, I put Colorado Springs as the number one on that list, knowing that there's not even one. Th- like, I did not do my research. Yeah. I know you've had a few people on here. I think Sergeant Conkle being one that was like, oh, I yeah. looked and did all my research and I know what, like, I knew where they needed people and what to do. I did nothing. I did a wish list of like, <laughs> this all sounds great. We'll see what happens. Yeah. No way it should have been approved. But the stars aligned. And, you got it. And I got Colorado Springs. They were activating a tenant unit. So it was a TFI. And okay. one of the few ones where the reserve unit, the 302nd, was the lead wing. And I think I was the 50th person to enter that squadron. Dang. I got into it real early. I was part of an airlift squadron, which at that point it was in the 130 world, not as common as I would have thought it would be. Yeah. Um, you're typically tied to like an AMXS or an MXS, but we were tied to the airlift squadron. So my boss was a pilot, like the commander was a pilot. Wow. We didn't have a, we had a maintenance officer, we had a, a moo, but no, it, it was a different experience. And then same thing as Little Rock, but kind of, I called it crew chief heaven. Yeah. We got to travel, see everything. And I was actually assigned to an aircraft and a lot of the, the larger bases, um, at that point, I don't know if they're doing it now cause I've been out of maintenance for a little bit as a first sergeant, but. The dedicated crew chief program where you get assigned to an actual plane and that's your plane. Yeah. They, it was alive and well there. Nice. And that was the first time I ever got to experience it. And I absolutely loved it. So if we have a someone listening to this mm-hmm. and they're potentially interested in joining the Air Force and doing something in the mechanical career field and they hear crew chief and they're like, wow, flying crew chief, that, that sounds interesting. Could you explain kind of a day in the life of what a flying crew chief does? What are their responsibilities um, and why it's so unbelievably important to have that flying crew chief on an aircraft? Yeah. So crew chief as a whole is kind of and that's where that APG came from. It's kind of like that all purpose general, like the jack of all trades. Yeah. So to speak. Right. So on the ground, like not a flying crew chief, just a crew chief. um, You were in charge or I was in charge of you know, forms, servicing, uh, and servicing could be anything from uh, lubrication, oil, gas, making sure things, making sure everything is ready to fly. Yeah. Right. Um, a flying crew chief, which is good too, because you don't have to be a crew chief to be a flying crew chief. That's, that's a misconception amongst a lot of people. And that's something that's, I think got more and more popular but it, it was happening when I was there too. Long story short, yeah. you, get, you go on a trip and you are in charge of that plane. Nice. Like, the whole time. The whole time. That is your plane. You might have an assistant flying crew chief, but the flying crew chief is in charge of it, right? So if it's in the air, it belongs to the pilot. Like yeah. you know your role, sit in the back, do what's told, <laughs> kind of keep track of what's going on a little bit. I was always on headset listening. So if they had issues when we landed, I knew what, I already had an idea of what was coming. Nice. Uh, but when it hit the ground, that was mine. Yeah. That was my aircraft. And as you progress and you start signing off like exceptional releases and you're that last signature, yeah. to make sure that thing, that aircraft, that jet, whatever you're on is, is good to go. That is, it is, um, it's an amazing feeling to have that kind of responsibility, but it's also humbling to know that, oh crap, I have that kind yeah. of responsibility. Yeah, for sure. Um, the best part about being a flying crew chief is the ownership. And that's why I like that DCC program, the dedicated crew chief program there's ownership over that plane. Like that was mm-hmm. my plane on the ground. That was my plane. 
when we traveled, that was my plane as a flying crew chief. That that is my baby. When it deployed, I got first crack at the deployment. When it went to depot, which is kind of the ISO docs taking apart, putting it back together, it's like on steroids. Yeah. Um, I was the one to go drop it off, pick it up. Oh, nice. All the equipment while it was like that was the way that program worked. That was me. So massive amounts of ownership. Yeah, that is really cool. And then the opportunities that that provides from a travel and seeing the world perspective is just unreal. Yeah. Um, stateside, I've been all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's only one state that I can think of that I have not been to and I've been meaning to go there. My wife wants me to take her there because it's, I don't know why I haven't been to New York, but I've never been to New York. Really? Nope. Out of all the states, New York. Never been to New York. Wow. It's the only one I can think of. And Alaska. She's been to Alaska. I have not been to Alaska. Somehow I've, I don't know. I, I wanted to go there forever. I mean, that one, understandable, but New York. I haven't made it to New York. But overseas, whether you're talking deployments, right? So we did Balad. I've got some chances to go to Bagram. Um, I have de- random deployments to Puerto Rico. And like, there's a bunch. So yeah. we've got a chance to see some things. But trips in Europe that I would have never imagined um, D-Day reenactments, yeah. which was amazing to go over there and spend time in France. And we spent some time in England and uh, Germany, Georgia, as in the country, not the state, Budapest. Like it's, we've been all over. Yeah. And in the 130 world, it gets a lot of, um, I guess, flack for being the, the four can trash can, a lot of people call it, and for being slow. Man, it was so much fun though. Yeah. It just means it's more places you got to stop. Heck yeah. So like a, a trip over to, if we're going to head over LUD, right? That's yep. a four or five day trip just to get there. Yeah. Um, later, and I'm sure we'll get there. I moved to Tankers. That's You can do that one shot. Yeah. So that four or five day trip was me going into the Azores or St. John's or Prestwick over in um, like the Scotland area and stuff. Just the places and the things we've yeah. got to do and the, the amount of time I've got to spend with people. It, it's amazing. Yeah. And then that Colorado, the 302nd, they have a whole different mission set that I didn't even know about. And that was the MAFS mission, so the Modular Aerial Firefighting. Okay. Um, so we get to go out there, and we're responding now to forest fires. Dang. And we're hitting the road, and that's more of the stateside mission, so we got to do a lot of that. And we're going spending weeks in Del Rio, Texas, putting fires out in Mexico. Or I spent a couple of weeks in Austin, Boise, um, just it's amazing to be tied to the actual mission at that level where you are like seeing it. Like there is that instantaneous, like I put this aircraft in the air, we're in charge of what's going on and watching them go put out a fire. Yeah. Um, and that hit home. I tried real story. I tried to palace chase at one point. I really, really considered it and was going to go that route and I was going to join the reserves and it was only for one reason. I'm glad I didn't, but it was for this reason. So, I was in Colorado Springs. We had bought a house and this, I don't remember the exact year, but we're probably talking 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, The Black Forest Fire goes off. Mm. So there's a forest fire. I lived on Black Forest Road. Oh boy. And was right there at that kind of evacuation point. Mm -hmm. So they told us you're safe, you can stay, but you need to be ready. So we had dogs, we were ready to go. I had a little girl, I think at that point. Uh, it's kind of all blurred to be honest with you, but I remember driving home and just seeing this giant plume of smoke Ooh. from the forest that's right behind 
like up the road, yeah. about a mile up the road, just engulfed in flames. And I remember turn, like dropping off some things, turning around and going right back to work and prepping aircraft and putting on these mass units yeah. and getting them out the door to go put out fires. And that is the closest I have ever been tied to like an actual mission and a job of watching and being that like yeah being tied to it and what they're doing and then knowing people that were affected and losing their homes and seeing those fires and the devastation um it i want to do it for the rest of my life yeah like for the, sure just being that close to it um it didn't work out the way which hindsight 2020 right like yeah so happy it didn't yeah i, I love what i'm at and i love what i'm doing um but that was it was an unreal experience mm -hmm. and it will always like Colorado Springs and Peterson, the 302nd and the people I met there and I knew there will always, always have a special place in my heart Yeah, Just for, from what we had to go through together as a team. Yeah. That's, I mean, one of the challenges that you have as a supervisor, um, at least in my old career field, air transportation, yep. um, is trying to show them from like, from a, a st standing back, taking a step back and saying the effect that you're doing, the job that you're doing here in Charleston or Dover or wherever we were stationed, the effect that you're having downrange, you know, you can't see it, but you have to realize the, the magnitude of what you're doing just by doing a simple job, like putting a pallet on a plane, you may think is simple and redundant and not important, but what you're doing is, is so, so critical in the completing the mission and for you you got to see that i mean you're doing this and then you see it so that that's that's awesome it it was a unique a unique opportunity and you're you're right on the money though so i i wish everyone in the air force at least had that understanding of how important what they're doing is yep and that's air trans that could be maintenance for myself mm -hmm. pilot all the way down to the, your services and your finance and all your base support right we would not be able to function as an air force without it. Yeah. We, we really wouldn't. And there's just, it gets difficult because there's so many lines between what you might be doing as a brand new airman at base, whatever to the mission overseas when you're either saving lives or, or dropping bombs. Yeah. Like there's, there's so many lines of separation that it's easy to get lost and not realize the importance of what you're doing. But, yeah. Oh my gosh. Tell, go overseas and deploy, leave your family here. Right. And then tell them like, Hey, we're not getting paid. Yeah. Sorry. Right. There, there was an error like that, that finance troop. People don't realize how important that is. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. Or we're not eating a day. Yeah. Like, I mean, pick, pick a topic, right? It's, it's just so important and mm -hmm. we rely on this. It really, it takes a team. Yeah. It really, it takes a village. It sure does. It takes a village. Man. Yeah. So you, from Colorado Springs, you move on. Is that to Tinker then? No. Nope. Uh, so from Colorado Springs, went through another base closure or unit shutdown, so to speak. So there's no more 52nd Airless Squadron in Colorado Springs. No. 50, I think 51 or 52 airmen into the seat. I was the last enlisted airman to leave on the maintenance side. Wow. Um, so... We shut it down and another f forced move. I got retrained, still crew chief, but retrained over to tankers. Okay. And I go to McConnell. 
McConnell. So I went from Colorado Springs to Kansas. Mm. Uh, big culture shock. Yeah. It really was. So not just from a, we got the mountains and it's beautiful and we're out here skiing, to Kansas with some wind and yeah. it's flat. But what I will say is Kansas has the most military friendly, or McConnell has the most military friendly community I've ever experienced. In my really? It is... Like it's true. They treat you like family. Yeah. 100%. Like I avoided going out in uniform because I don't like getting my meals paid for. And yeah. As much as I appreciate the thank you for your services and the handshakes, I, I really do. It means a lot. I don't like the the attention and I don't like all that added. So extra. why do you think that is? Why do you think that they are so um, grateful that, you know, the military is there? I'm not real sure. I think part of it is probably that that base has been there for so long. Yeah. And I think there's just this cohesiveness that works with the community and the base. Like I, I do feel like that base 100% needs Wichita. Yeah. Because there's so many services that are around the base. They haven't needed to put them on the base. Sure. Right. But the flip side of that is Wichita really, I think needs that base too. Yeah. Um, Wichita, most people don't realize is the aviation capital of the world. Wow. So, there's so many just aviation companies out there and there's a lot going on. And from a maintenance community and pilot community, there's a lot of transitions out of the Air Force. You stay right yeah. there in Wichita and there's plenty of work and there's things you can do and opportunities. Um, so I think there's been that pipeline from the military community there into that civilian sector. But in the end, I think they also are just, they're just good people. Yeah. Like there's good people out there. Oh yeah, for sure. So it, it was a blessing. I was, the wife and I were extremely nervous headed out to Wichita because we knew it was a big change. We didn't have a choice in it. That yeah. was another, like I said, another shutdown. Uh, we got two options. It was McConnell and Whiteman. And we made our selections and then they said, well, really, Whiteman's not an option. They don't have, there's not enough manning, but there's not enough positions. Mm. So by the time it happened, we go to McConnell. And I had to transition, when I say culture change, into the tanker world. Yeah. It's not bad by any means. Tanker World's awesome. And same thing. They're doing amazing stuff. It was just so different than what I was used to. Yeah. It's a different culture for crew chiefs. And that's where I got back into the APG is kind of standard now. Uh -huh. It's on the patches. They're used to it. And it's it just wasn't what I was used to as a 130 crew chief. But I, I like tankers too. Like I thought it was an easy aircraft to work. And I say that and I'll do respect to everyone left on the tankers. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was built... And kind of easier to maintain. Sure. Like, it's still broke. The 135s out there are old. Yeah. Like, we're talking 60 models. I mean, they're double my age. Gently my used. Age. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're getting up there. Now, yeah. they got some fancy some fancy tankers with the KC-46 out there now. And those Ooh. things are, I mean, they're bougie. Yeah. They're nice. They're real nice. They're real nice. But it's, it's a different environment. Mm -hmm. um, and I went there. At a different point in my career too, right? So I wasn't that senior airman or staff sergeant anymore. I went there as a tech sergeant, uh, showed up, and then I think I sewed on master within not even a year. Like wow. my EPR had closed out at the previous base, which I'm sure, I mean, some of the people know what I'm talking about on here, right? Yeah. Um, but I ended up making master out of that cycle and or master sergeant. And it was just stepping into that senior NCO core. Was, it was just different. It was a culture change all around. New aircraft, new place, new rank. It was, it was interesting. So when did you decide to, to apply or try to go for first sergeant? So 
We're going to be honest, right? I didn't want to be a first sergeant. No? Not originally. Not originally. So the way I got brought up and the way I came to the Air Force, I wanted to help people and I wanted to impact lives. Mm -hmm. I had had some really good first sergeants and I'd had some that I didn't even know. Yeah. And at that point, I thought I would have more impact as a flight line expediter or as a production superintendent because I was out there on the pavement, like getting it done. Yeah. Like I had that direct line with people. I got asked if I was interested. So this was DSD process. Okay. So the DSD process, developmental special duty, at that point, the first year I went through it was not volunteer based. So they'd give you, they'd ask out of respect, I think. If I would have said no, they probably still would have pushed it. (laughs) But I said, I'd be interested in it. So they pushed my name forward. And then I went and did the uh, additional duty first sergeant symposium. Yeah. Just to kind of understand what I was possibly getting into. And I got a phone call. I was actually moving positions. I was already a production superintendent. And I was supposed to be going up to the squadron to work on a different position. Uh, still pro super, but it was at a different level, so to speak. Or at least that was the way it was explained to me. Sure. So I showed up day one. And they said, oh, we got to change. You need to go talk to chief. I go talk to chief. Well, your name got pushed. It's going to leave the wing. There's a really strong likelihood you're about to be a first sergeant. So we're going to take advantage of that, and we're going to move you over to the maintenance group. And you're going to be the additional duty first sergeant over there because their current first sergeant, their diamond wearing shirt, is about to retire. Okay. So, okay, well, this will be interesting. Uh, Didn't know what I was getting into. Still on the fence about being a shirt. And I got, I think, a week of training from the senior first sergeant, uh, senior master sergeant Eric O'Brien out of the AMXS. I got put over in the MXO or the maintenance group. And just within two weeks, I was running solo. Wow. I did not know I wanted to be a shirt. And I did not know this was the thing for me until I had my first, I don't know how to put like waterworks. Best way to put it, right? So the yeah. first time... I had a staff sergeant, I know exactly who she was, came in in the office and just was asking and pleading, like, you guys need to help me. I've got this situation. And there was nothing we had to do. Like, it was, it was just one of those one-offs of, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how the Air Force works sometimes. I'm sorry. But we didn't, I didn't leave it at that. And I was like, I think we can do something. And I dug in and we got the answer we wanted and we were able to help her. And... When we told her, like, okay, this is X, Y, and Z, this is what's going to happen, and she broke down, and it was just straight tears of joy. Like, yeah, I'd never seen that at that level with someone that that's really probably I knew her, but I was still kind of new in the job, mm-hmm. and I didn't know her that well. So it it moved me, and I was like, oh my gosh, like maybe I can have that impact. And this is and the then job, it, for and me. then it started to hit a little bit. So you start having more of those things, and yeah, as a first sergeant, there are some negative things that you can deal with. Right? Sure. Um, there's obviously we're that advisor to the commander on discipline. And sometimes it's that the morale on the bad side, like we're dealing with some negative stuff. Mm-hmm. But I never really got consumed by it. And I, I really do feel like this is where my, my childhood and how I came up, like groomed me for this. Yeah. Because there was nothing that was going to surprise me. Like sure. I knew – how bad it can be. And it was easier for me to empathize with folks because it wasn't, I don't know how your situation is exactly. 
mm-hmm. but I, I I know pretty close how it feels and what you're going through or what those kids are going through. So yeah, it was easier for me than I think some of the other people that may have stepped in early. So I sat there for about three, four months and I ended up not getting picked up for a first sergeant role. Oh, wow. Uh, I got passed over. I was not released by my career field. At the time, uh, crew chief, uh, aircraft maintenance was undermanned and they weren't letting go. So DSD had gone away for first arms and went to a volunteer basis. So volunteered for it the next time. Now I'm, I'm all in. This is my yeah. job. I love it. I had a uh, 06 Colonel Downing let me stay in that position. Um, I believe, and I don't know what point they had offered him, like, hey, we can get you an actual diamond-wearing first sergeant, and he declined it. Wow. So Sergeant Jordan's doing a good job, and we'll keep him here. So I got the opportunity to stay. We went it fast forward another year, or another six, seven months, got passed over again. Dang. So I didn't get it again. Still loving my job. Yeah. Still having a blast. I didn't care. I knew that from a professional standpoint, it was going to start to hurt me if I didn't get picked up to be a first sergeant Mm -hmm. because I'd stepped out of my career field, which is a positive, but in the maintenance community, like an additional duty first sergeant isn't viewed at the same level, so to speak, as like those pro supers and those like like the flight line producing, like you're out there getting the mission done and turning sorties and stuff, right? So valued, yes. Never felt like I wasn't valued, but I also knew the hierarchy of maintenance. Mm Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. But I didn't want to quit because I never had that type of job satisfaction in my career. And I'd never, I didn't know the impact I could have been having. So it it just worked out. And I volunteered again. Yeah. And we waited another cycle. And I got passed over again. For real? For real. So I went to, like I was a little discouraged. Yeah. And there were some real conversations about, do I need to stop trying to do this? And is it time to go back to the career field? And I think they were really thinking about pulling me back. Um, at this point, I had a decent relationship with our command chief because that is kind of that functional at a base level for all the first sergeants. Yeah. And she had been pushing my name, right? So when you go up for DSDs or you go up for a first sergeant, you do have to interview with the command chief and they do rack and stack things and they have this whole process and they are essentially signing off that this is going to be a good fit and this is going to be a good first sergeant. And this is my third time trying. Yeah. I do not know what happened. Three weeks later, two and a half, three weeks later, I got surprised in the office with a whole team of first sergeants. My wife was there and the commander, and I finally made it, and they were going to make me a first sergeant. Wow. I was told you don't get picked up out of cycle. I I wasn't picked up in that normal cycle. I know that much. And I was never told what happened or why. I was just said, I was told we got it fixed. You're going to be a first sergeant. So just be happy. Wow. That's awesome. But I'll never forget walking around after I was told no on that third time and congratulating the other two people who had gotten picked up and were my peers. And we've been doing this together. And it was such a conflicted feeling. And I felt like I needed to go through that. Yeah. And that was kind of like that whole, the universe fate, whatever you want to call it, like putting things in alignment to, I had to go through that pain a little bit and I had to get humbled a little bit mm-hmm. and knock down a few pegs. Maybe you're not entitled to anything. Yeah. Like I felt at that point in my career, and it's one of the few times I felt this way. I deserve this. I've been doing this job. I've earned it. That's not how the air force works. Yep. I mean, it'll come when it's ready and when you're, when you're ready. So it, I had a bit of a, a struggle and a journey 
to becoming a first sergeant and finally getting picked up. That's kind of like that. Uh, that reminds me of, you know, in a, a championship game or something and your team loses, but mm-hmm. you sit out and you watch the other team celebrate, you know, because you're, you, you got to humble yourself and realize that you, you're not entitled to this. Yeah. And, uh, It'll just give you a little more drive to, to work a little harder next year. So, And it doesn't have to be a championship game. No. It doesn't. Like I saw that this year uh, watching Green Bay and the Lions, big Detroit Lions fan. Yeah. And watching them go into Lambeau and just really soaking it up and then watching Aaron Rodgers walk off and defeat. Yeah, that must be nice. It was um, nice. Yeah. Please don't remind me. I was going to say, aren't you a Packers fan? I am a Packers fan, and uh, believe me, everybody, I, I heard enough from from this uh, gentleman over here a couple weeks ago. But I digress. So <laughs> Had to get my shot in, Jack. There you, you know go. You I got my it. lines. Yeah, yeah. Hey, they're doing well. So I want to talk a little bit more about First Sergeant because I think yeah. that is such an important role, and I don't, I don't believe that a lot of people – really know what a first sergeant does, especially from an outsider's perspective. So this is going to be a two-part question. Okay. Number one, can you tell me some of the roles and responsibilities that you had as a first sergeant? And number two, what was the best part for you about being a first sergeant? Okay. So roles and responsibilities. So textbook answer really is I am the key advisor to the commander on everything, health, morale, readiness, right? So, I mean, there's a lot to it. We have a whole AFI on the first sergeant. Yeah. What it boils down to for me is I have in this unit, good example, I have 86 bosses. Mm -hmm. Like I have the commander and on paper, that's the only person who rates on me. And that's my only, like, that's my direct line. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a responsibility to advise and help and eyes and ears of what's going on in the unit to her or him. Right now it's her. But I feel I have an obligation to every every single person in this unit to be there and to work for them. Yeah. And their spouses when needed and or their dependents. When I describe it to people who are outside of the military, I've tried to say it's like HR, but a little bit on steroids because we do so much more than just your typical HR generalist or manager. It, yeah. it, it is really hard to quantify or explain sometimes because there's so many things that are behind the scenes. Like, yes, we have rules. I run like a family care plan, mm-hmm. right? The family care plan program. Um, or like here in this unit, I'm heavily, heavily involved in the awards program. Yeah. Um, I do have some like hard line, like these are things you will do, but what you don't see or what's not always on the paper is going to be like the resiliency side of things. Mm-hmm. It's picking up people when they're down. It's the leadership side that goes into that. It's when we have someone who's at a low and they're thinking about self-harm or suicide or whatever those lows look like. It's, it is me being there and helping them and being that ear to as far, at least as far as I can, right? There's a, you have to know at a certain level, like this is beyond my expertise and this is not me. I cannot help any further outside of getting you the help you need. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times it's me taking someone to the resources that they, they need or they want. So the, the best way I look at it, and a lot of first aren't don't like it when I say this, but 
that you're going to get me, right? I am a master sergeant. Yeah. Like first, before I'm a first sergeant. I love my role as a first sergeant. I love everything I do. The only thing that separates me from a master sergeant is a diamond on my chest and the continuity that I am providing to the commander in the squadron. Mm-hmm. I went through, we go through a first sergeant academy. You get some specialized training. You go through some resiliency stuff, similar to what a lot of folks do. Uh, safe talk, assist training, some suicide stuff. But in the end, any master sergeant or anyone in the Air Force can do those things. All I offer is continuity yeah. and a resource. Um, sometimes I play dumb. Most of the time I am a little bit dumb. And I don't need to know everything. Like that's a big misconception of first sergeants are expected to know all the answers. Yeah. I don't know all the answers. I know how to find someone. Oh, yeah. And I'll get you a person or I'll get you a number. That is the biggest thing about my job is building relationships and making connections mm-hmm. because I can't do it all. No one can do it all. Yeah. And that's that's all I can really offer. Um, second part of your question. What was it again? Hit me up. What is your favorite part about being a first sergeant? Favorite part about being a first sergeant. Or most enjoyable. The most enjoyable part for me is I get paid and I have the responsibility of making connections. Yeah. Find me a job where you get to go travel here at recruiting service, right? Mm-hmm. Last yesterday I was in Chicago hanging out with our MEPS. Yeah. No real reason. I didn't have a purpose to be there other than just to be there. Yeah. Right. Last week, um, I was down at Scott Air Force Base and for this, we don't even have anyone at Scott, right? Yeah. We went down there to say thank you. That was the whole reason I was there is just to say thank you and build those connections and say thanks for taking care of our people up here in Wisconsin and um, Illinois and Iowa and Michigan. Thank you. And we just shook some hands and yeah. hand out some coins and some some stuff. And then the week before that, I'm in Iowa doing the same thing. Like I don't – there's no – I don't have a mission – that I'm getting after when I go drive around and I go do these things. And there's a reason I keep track on my board of like how many miles we put in. And I've got a goal of I'm going to be on the road this much. Yeah. Um, because at least in this unit, our recruiters are on their own in a lot of times. Mm-hmm. They're out there in an office. Some of them have office partners. Some of them don't. And even if it's just me going out and saying thank you and offering some affirmation, like that's what I'm getting. Like that's legit. Like what I get paid to do. Yeah. You can't tell me that's not a good gig. No. no yeah. It, it sounds amazing. awesome. Like there's some bad stuff, right? There's not, it's not all run, sunshine and rainbows. Um, I mean, I had a hard time growing up. The worst experiences of my life were as a first sergeant. And I mean that. Yeah. But it's, it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. Like it's amazing what we do. Yeah. All right. So, a couple more questions here before we wrap it up. Oh, Sorry, Jordan. Up. No, we're good. Hit so me. these are the big ones. So the first question is, what is the best piece of advice that you have received or mentorship that you have been given in your Air Force career that you use to this day and that you will take with you for the rest of your life? Okay. So I'm not going to be able to pick one check. Okay. All right. So, and... Here, I'll put it this way. Have you ever seen, I don't know if you want to call it an illustration or a meme, but use that mind's eye of yours. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen, there's a picture out there where there's this little boy and he's like taking blocks or puzzle pieces out of his dad. 
And oh that's yes. That's yep. what, that's what makes him right. Yep. I tell airmen, I tell people all the time, be yourself, like be genuine to who you are. Like if, if you're kind of a jerk, I'm not saying you should be a jerk, but don't walk around smiling all day and pretending yeah. to be nicer than you are. Cause people see through that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're happy, just be happy. I don't got to walk around trying to be mean that you're going to see through it. So be who you are and that's important, but pull from people to help you build your style of leadership and build who you are. When I say take that puzzle piece or take that block and use it to make you like, that's not pulling from one person. Sure. I've pulled from so many people and have so many nuggets that I have used because like when I joined, I didn't know what right looked like. So I found what wrong looked like. Mm -hmm. And then in doing that, I started to recognize the folks who like, okay, so this is the way to do things. So if someone doesn't know how to, you know, who doesn't look right because they don't have to put a uniform on. Yeah. That's easy to figure out. Right. <laughs> but in doing that now you can figure out, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Yep. If I've always been a believer, if you go out and you try to find the best person at something, you're going to end up selling yourself short because you get kind of pigeonholed on that, that one person. You're going to try to be that person. Yep. And that's not you. So I've always gone the opposite of like, who is who's not doing things right? Because it was easier for me to identify. I think it's easier for anyone to identify, to be honest. And then I could take that opposite. And when I was able to identify the good things I've done, a, in my opinion, I've done, I've been blessed to surround myself with amazing people. And I've had amazing mentors and I've pulled something from every one of them. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, I told the commander the other day, we were talking in the car and it was uh, Chief Leo Riley and he hates it when I do this to him, but I kept showing up to work and I would stay later. I had this in my head that I need to stay later than everyone here because mm-hmm. that's what leaders do. I'd be the first one in the last one to leave. And my family, my home life, I didn't have that balance. And I don't really know if there is a balance, but he pulled me aside and, he's, and he was talking about values and don't you value your family. And we're just having a discussion. And then before he left, he looked at me and he said, don't ever let your convictions get in the way of your values. Very nice. And it stuck with me, right? Every mentor that I have had has given me something and then I can use it and I can tailor it and it's developed who I am. And I didn't copy from just one person. I, I've stole from everyone. Like I legit, I will steal. If you've got something good, I'm going to steal that idea, that trait, and I'm going to use it because it makes me better and it makes the team better. Yeah. I guess you could sum that up, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you've got something, take it yeah. and share it with someone else and pull from those leaders that you admire and you respect. And then the only piece I would add to that is say thank you. So all those mentors that have really, really impacted me, I keep a list and it's not from a retirement standpoint. I'm not going to stand up and say, thank you. You've done this and this and this, but I legit every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, I go to that list and I shoot them all a message and just say happy Thanksgiving, hope family's doing well. And whether it's previous commanders chiefs, whatever. Um, I've got seniors, other mass sergeants, my peers. Yeah. And just say thanks. And every time I steal something or I regurgitate something I've learned or I've developed from them, I think about them and then I sh- try to shoot them a text and just say thank you. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of kept me grounded, I think, a little bit and in touch with them and goes back to those connections. Those yeah, absolutely. Those relationships. That's some amazing advice. And I mean, what do you think I'm doing here? I, this is why I ask every single, at the end of every single podcast, what kind of advice and, and mentorship that you're getting. I'm stealing that. 
intellectual thievery. Yeah. And it, it ain't patented. Take it's it. not. And every episode that I've had, I mean, these the guests that I've had on, including yourself, have had such amazing advice. I can't help but be like, wow. Yeah. I mean, we had Sergeant Bell on and I loved hers. Yeah. Sergeant Bell last episode. And she said, uh, she, she said, uh, be replaceable. Yeah. And obviously it's a negative connotation, but the way she explains it, it's amazing. It is something that as NCOs, senior NCOs, we've heard that in a different narrative, right? Yeah. And that is train your replacement. Mm-hmm. She has shifted that and turned it to a way that she can understand it and she can comprehend it. And then she can like yeah. move on to the next person or pass that on to the next person. Yeah. And it's, it's genius. I love it. I love it. All right. So Sergeant Jordan, last question I have okay. is if I was a brand new airman in the United States Air Force, I just graduated basic training. Ready to go. I'm bright eyed, bushy tailed, ready to go, right. super blue. And, and I am just geared up. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to sit down with Master Sergeant Anthony Jordan. What is some of the advice that you would give me as a brand new airman? Okay. Well, don't lose sight of this bright-eyed, bushy tail, super blue, this motivation. Yeah. Okay? One of the things that always rubs me the wrong way, so to speak, and go into F-tax, and you talk to a lot of airmen, and this is not a shot at our chiefs. I love our chiefs. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the times we hear over and over that that first thing a new airman needs to do when they get to their base is learn your job. Yeah. You need to be good at your job. If you're great at your job, everything else is going to follow. It is so important that you are good at your job. Yeah. It is not, in my opinion, the most important thing. When you go to basic, they teach you how to be an airman. Mm-hmm. Right? That is the basics of it. We're going to learn how to be an airman. When I put on a uniform, it doesn't have an occupational badge on it yet yep. for that first time. It's got U.S. Air Force on it. Don't lose sight of being an airman. If you are the best airman you can be, you are going to be the best ground trans, maintainer, I mean, load master, XYZ, right? Whatever it is, that'll follow. Mm-hmm. Learn your job. Be amazing at your job. Be the best at your job there is. But be the best airman and don't lose sight of that. Yeah. And what we do is so much bigger than just a job. Yes. That is where we lose sight of, like, be great at your job. I can be great at my job at McDonald's. Yep. Not a shot at McDonald's. I can be great at my job at, job at Home Depot or anywhere you want to put me. What makes us different than all of those other professions is that we're in the Air Force. Yep. And we have we are part of something so much bigger than just being good at your job. Yeah. That is that would be the advice I would give. Jeff. That's amazing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that that's awesome. And I stole that partially. I changed a little bit. Uh, Sergeant Sam or Master Sergeant Sam Prentice, one of my first Sergeant mentors. That goes back to the steel. Heck yeah. Actual intelligence. Uh, yeah. I heard him say something similar. Yeah. And it just it resonated with me. I was like, that is how many people lose sight of the basics mm-hmm. starting to run before they can walk. Yep. And it's it's one of those things that's just always stayed there ever since I heard it. It's awesome. So was this. This conversation was awesome, Sergeant Jordan. I appreciate it. Check. Don't I don't want you to think it's lost on me that I was your first 
first sergeant? First, first. Well, here in the I mean, podcast, I mean, I had Chief Goldsmond, and he was a first sergeant, but first he wasn't active wearing a diamond, diamond wearing no, first Goldstrom. sergeant. Okay, that's right. To throw that in there. Yeah, yeah. Chief sorry. Yeah. Shout out to Chief Goldsmond, but uh, yeah, and you did not disappoint. I knew this was going to be a great podcast. Um, just sitting down in the office and having conversations with you, I totally understand why one of the one of your most favorite parts about being a first sergeant is making connections because you you it's seamless and uh and just being able to show showcase that on the podcast uh has been awesome so i appreciate that anytime you want to have a conversation you want to chat you want to bring some people out i'm always willing to have a conversation yeah be there for a, a good dialogue um what i will what i'll say this and i know you're trying to wrap it up you've been doing an amazing job on this podcast thank you uh, I, I listen to them. I enjoy them. I've even dropped a couple ratings and you're getting five stars from me. Oh yeah. Um, what you were doing is amazing and we appreciate you. And I can't wait to see where you go from here. So, oh, like, I think, thank you. I appreciate it. But that is going to be it for us here at the air power hour. Once again, thank you, Sergeant Jordan for coming on. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the air power hour. Take care friends. Mm-hmm.